0: Please stand for the reading of the word. Our scripture is found in the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to that church, and that church in that province of Asia, around probably 60 A.D. Interesting thing, uh, in Colossians, which is a sister epistle, covers a lot of the same ground, Paul dealt with a lot of doctrinal truth. Probably not long after he wrote Colossians, there in prison in Rome, he wrote Ephesians. And when he gets to Ephesians, it's not didactic teaching anymore. It's doxology. He's gone from doctrine to doxology. This whole passage is a passage in praise and adoration and incredible awe and reverence of God Almighty and His work in salvation for His people. So that's what this passage is. It's a great doxology. And what's interesting, it's one sentence. This whole uh, section here is one sentence in the Greek language. So we'll ask you to diagram the sentence when when the message is over. That'll be the quiz for this morning. But give attention now to the the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage you also notice is very Trinitarian. It starts, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's God the Father. And several of the pronouns, he or him, reference God and God's blessing. God has bestowed and lavished upon His Son an inheritance. And He has then taken those whom He has chosen, the Father has chosen, from the foundation of the world and placed them mysteriously but dynamically in Christ, Considered them with Christ, put them in union with Christ and therefore everything that He promised and everything He delivered as a blessing to His Son now comes to those who are in Christ by faith. And so God is doing a work for them and in them and He's doing it through His Son substitutionarily. And in every way bringing more and more of the riches of His grace to bear upon His Son and the people that are in His Son spiritually, spiritually placed there. And He's working this all out through the might and the power of His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is the one that is operative within the soul of these chosen people. The Holy Spirit is the one that we shall say applies the redemption, the salvation that was wrought by Christ in His finished work and in His earthly ministry and His obedience. And the Holy Spirit, because He is at work within the souls, has put His seal upon each soul. The seal is the sign of authenticity and authority. The sign of ownership. It is also a sign of Preservation. They belong to God. God knows them. They are His. Not one of them will be lost. They are all in Christ for eternity. And in this particular passage, we see that the Holy Spirit then actually is the one that becomes the guarantee. He's the one that becomes the first fruits. He is the one who is the down payment or the earnest money or the first installment to guarantee that the rest will come to be delivered and will be the possession of the believer in Christ for all eternity. You see, there is here the whole plan and scope of the work of Christ. And the way God is redeeming the human race, preserving the species, restoring, bringing all of the species under one new head, and that is Jesus Christ. There was a first Adam which wrought sin and death. There is a second Adam which brings life everlasting. This is God. Revealing, making known something that's mysterious. That is something that was not really fully fleshed, fully fleshed out in the Old Testament. Something that was uh, in vague shadows and types and only in contours and glimpses. But it's now come to be an absolute worked out reality that there is a mighty people of God, a church. And they are gathered under one shepherd, under one head, under one ruler. And that ruler, of course, is Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the scope of all the blessings that God bestows upon Christ and bestows upon us because we are in Christ. And we've been placed there by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us from death to life. And all of this is in the the mood of praise and glory because it's all designed to bring glory to the Lord. Now you can see right away that this is a passage that is loaded with terminology. In fact, uh, most of the great words found in the Christian religion are found here. Things like redemption and obedience and and faith and belief and and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, very Trinitarian. It also covers the whole range of eternity and time. In eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God devises the plan, brings it out of his own soul, brings it out of his own will, out of his own being. God says, I will save humanity. I will not be defeated. My creation will not go into extinction. They will not perish, but I will keep them no matter what we have to go through. And God The Father plans all of this and chooses His people and sends His Son to die for that number of people. And then His Spirit regenerates, brings from death to life that same number of people. And none of them is lost. And it covers redemption, election, sanctification, justification. All those two words are not used in here, but I'll show you where they are. And just go down the line. And all of this to the praise of His glory. Now, our perspective is a little warped, I think, in our modern day, because we somehow see salvation as what God did for our good and our benefit. And He certainly did that. That's not wrong. God has given us all of these things because we are needy. And He has restored and He has resurrected and He has repaired. He has renewed There are just so many things in our lives and in our existence as human beings that need to be dealt with. And in the gospel, in the work of Christ, in the plan of redemption, God takes care of every one of them and solves them all. Our alienation, our loneliness, our corruption, our depression, everything you can think of, God works in bringing it about. And ultimately, the ultimate good, our complete salvation and glorification in heaven for all eternity. But notice God in His plan works it out in eternity, in time past. Then there are things He does in time present. Time present would be the age, the age of time, the age in which was found its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. Things that Christ did in history as the clock ticked and as the calendar tore off the pages. God was at work in time and in humanity. But He doesn't stop there. There are things that will continue throughout all eternity. So there's that particular view in this as well. But let's get through a couple of these things with the time we have this morning. And remember now our our tone is that of doxology and praise to God. And uh, by the way, uh, this is one of those passages that it is thought, and I believe it's probably true, that was used in the ancient church liturgy because it is very readable, it is compact. It is one of these passages, and I think you felt it as we read it a moment ago. This this needs to be publicly read in scripture. These are one of these faithful sayings. This is something where Paul and the other apostles and, and biblical writers take and put a tremendous amount of truth and load it up into short compass and a small impact that can be read just within a few minutes within the congregation of the faithful. And so we're looking at something that's not only doxological, but it's, it's uh, liturgical, it's Trinitarian. And another thing you'll notice about this passage is almost everything is the working of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we said, but, but about a dozen times in this passage, the term in Christ is used. In Christ, or with Christ, or through Christ. And one time Christ is not named. He's called the Beloved. And that's exactly, of course, who He is. Jesus Christ is the Beloved Son of God. In fact, John says it best in John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That's John's summary in one short verse of what Paul gives us in one long sentence that God, the Father, loves the Son and has given all things. And this all things is used in this passage. It's used in Ephesians. It's used in Romans. It's used in a lot of places. And it, and it, it means without can, uh, any kind of failure, God has accomplished everything in time, in eternity, in heaven, in earth, for man, for mankind's salvation. The ultimate end of all of this is not just our good, but it's His glory. He works everything, as I said a moment ago, for our good, for sure. But ultimately, it's for His glory. And if you don't catch that, you'll have a little gap in your understanding of the sovereignty of God. And that is that God creates all things. He creates vessels to be used and to be containers and to be conduits and to be recipients, but He creates vessels of mercy, and He creates vessels of wrath. There are things that we need in the great drama of redemption to display all of His glorious attributes. And He can't do it if all He has is vessels of mercy, His justice, His holiness, His wrath, All of the things that make God that fearful, awesome God that He is, far above our understanding and far beyond our comprehension and far beyond our control. The thing that makes Him God is He also creates vessels of wrath. Check me out on that in Romans 9. So God is orchestrating everything. Let's just review some of these things that we see in the passage In Christ, with this union with Christ, that is Christ has made, God has made Christ the mediator. He's the one that stands between God and man. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, Let's just start right at the good place, right there at the very beginning. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is a divine reckoning. We are so worldly. (laughs) so materialistic, so humanistic, and so earthbound, temporal, terrestrial, that we can't see the divine, heavenly, cosmic purposes of God quite so much. That's why God has to reveal these mysteries to us. We cannot answer the question, what is God up to? What is God doing? What is His plan? What is His purpose? Unless He pulls the curtain back in an apocalypse and reveals to us Bits and pieces of it. And that's what, of course, he's done in his word, and that's especially what has done, he has done here in this particular epistle and in Colossians when he talks about over and over in each epistle the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Oh, my goodness, that sounds a lot like election. Uh, it's the will of God. It comes out of His divine choice. He is the one that exercises the supreme volition. Now our volition is related to, tied to, dependent upon, derivative of, and capable of straying and sinfulness. But God's volition is a determined volition. And He has dimensions to it. There's His decree His decretive volition, his decretive will, where he says, I will do it, and it will happen. And that cannot be stayed, that cannot be thwarted, and that cannot be turned. And that cannot be changed or reduced. God's going to accomplish all of that. There is God's dispositive will, his emotional will. His determined that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The fact that people do not come to repentance, do not believe, is not God's fault. He has done all and made all. It's in found in them and their personal choices and their personal representation and their personal decisions. There is God's descriptive will. Or prescriptive will, where He sets something out that He wants to be done. The Ten Commandments, the law, are one of those things. That's the will of God for us, as we saw in our message last week in Romans chapter 12. It's the will of God that's good and perfect. And God has a will that says we should do these things. So the will of God is multifaceted. multifaceted. And we must try as best we can to understand. That's why it says when He revealed the mystery, He revealed it in wisdom and in knowledge. Uh, It's unbelievable how important understanding, wisdom, cognitive function, cogitating, meditating, catching on, being able to understand and discern and, and to really have a deep and rich understanding of the contours and the limits and the definitions of things. And yet we as Christians, by and large, even in our, in our own teaching, we just sort of let that go. We just sort of smooth off the rough edges and run around things and, and don't get down to the definitives. And the fine points of Christian theology. It was a frustration to the preacher in Hebrews when he said, you should be eating meat, but we're feeding you now still milk. Some people have never had anything but just a few bottles of milk. Of the word, and they try to figure out election. They try to figure out divine predestination, but it is an appointing by God, an ordaining by God. It is done beforehand. In our passage here, it says before the foundation of the world. And there's a purpose to election. God knows that if He didn't elect a certain number to salvation, nobody would be saved. If God didn't determine and reach out and put His hand upon particular people and bring them to Christ and bring them to faith and to bring them to Himself, there would be zero believers. The so is the incapacity and the inability and the ineptitude in the human heart. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that understands. There is none that does right. No, not one. They have all become unprofitable. Read about it in Romans 1. The extent and the depth and the helplessness of our souls. Nobody would choose Christ. You will not come to me that you may have eternal life. No one can come to the Father unless he be drawn. It is clear we are in that condition. And if it wasn't for divine election, if it wasn't God choosing and placing his affection upon some, there would be None. And if there were none, His purposes in grace would be thwarted. There would be no need for a new heaven and a new earth. There would be no need for anything. There would be no need for Christ to come. There would be none coming because it all depends upon the human choice. And the humans cannot make such a choice. So why should Christ come and die when He knows no one would be saved of their own ability and their own accord and their own decision? So in order to make it happen, in order for God's decretive will to be accomplished, He had to work a work of election. And we've been chosen in Him. And every Christian should come to terms with that understanding. And when you come to terms and realize that God's election is is purposeful, it's for God's own pleasure and God's own praise. It's not just for your convenience or for your salvation. His choosing is not centered or focused on anything in you whatsoever. I'm not saying it's arbitrary, but it's certainly not deserved by the recipient. That's what grace means, undeserved favor. Unmerited favor, unearned favor. Favor with respect to no one. God is no respecter of persons. There's not one saved because they're slightly better or slightly more inclined to God than others. We're saved by just sovereign mercy out of the will of God. And when you come to understand that, it will bring you to a place in your soul that that nothing else will bring you to. It will bring you to a place of humility, love, dependence, absolute, awesome worship. Of the Lord God Almighty. And it's all to the praise of his glory. And let's see, we got a couple of more things here we'll look at before we run out of time. He predestined us for adoption. Oh, by the way, it says uh, that He were He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. There's your sanctification and your justification. Holiness is that purity of life, that separation, that being set apart from the world, being cut out of the herd, and then being cleaned up in in moral purity. That's what God's work is. You say, I don't know if I'm elect or not. I can't figure it out. I I can't feel. I can't tell. Well, had you come to Christ? Did you call upon the name of the Lord? Have you repented of your sins? Are you seeing things in your life change? Have you been converted in soul? That means you've been changed in soul. Have you been given new affections? Do you hate your sin? Do you love the Lord? Does your knee bow? Are you moving in that direction? If you are, those are good checkpoints. The first letter of John is a good place to start. There are checkpoints that you can see of whether or not you are elect. You've got to make your calling and election sure and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's where the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be introspective and He wants us to be extremely aware of these important things. And holy and blameless. Blameless means there's no blame. We're not guilty. This is justification. It's forensic. It's God's eternal verdict based not upon the sinner's Condition, but upon what Christ did in substituting for the sinner in the cross. And the sinner was in Christ as he hung upon the cross. The sinner is in Christ as he rose from the dead. Check me out on that. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It's Romans 6. This is, this is where our spiritual life is. And it mentions here that we have been chosen... For adoption. Adoption is a legal term. Actually adoption says that we are guaranteed. We have a legal entitlement. To an inheritance. We are the rightful heir. The father bestows all things upon the son. And because we're in the son. We're the recipient. Of all of these blessings. That he has lavished upon us. He predestinated us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved, that's in Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches in grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose. We'll have to sketch a couple of things at this point, but redemption. There are three words in the Old Testament that have to do with redemption, but basically it calls for purchasing out of a thraldom or out of an enslavement. It's meeting the obligations of a debt, it is relieving someone from, uh, it's delivering someone or relieving someone and giving someone their freedom. That's what God has done for us in Christ. Christ's death is a redemption. One of the words is a kafar. It means a covering. A debt is covered. That's the atonement. Another word is the pada. It means to purchase with a price. It's a commercial term. Whereas the kafar is a religious or liturgical term. And then there's a third term. It's from family law. The goel the kinsman redeemer, the one who is near kin who can satisfy legally the obligations of another. And Christ is that near kinsman. You want to check me out on that? Read the book of Hebrews. That's where you'll find our near kinsman, our fellow human being, Jesus Christ has redeemed us. One more point or two before I'm done. I've got a whole bunch of them here. But here's a good one. It talks about how he unites us, how he unites us, and the uniting of us in Christ, uniting all things, I'm in around verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's that, there's that phrase again. Uh, the, the idea of God having a united people, the, there's an interesting word um, in that's used, and it's translated, I think, in the authorized version of gathered together it unite. It's a word that means uh, to put together under one headship. It's actually the word caliph. Anna, which means again, or raise up to, and caliph, which means the head. Have you heard Islam tries to establish a caliphate? You've heard the word? That's that's the same concept. In fact, it's in all of the Abrahamic faiths. The idea that God has a caliphate. Uh, The the, uh, Hebrew people came to see that in the synagogue. The word synagogue means to gather together. So synagoguing and caliphating and uniting under one head are concepts that come into our religious life. But ours is with a caliphate that is not a human being, with a caliphate that is not a council of elders, but a caliphate that is a person. And so Christ, as Paul will flesh it out, is the head of His people. It is the uniting, the gathering together of all people, united again, Anna, into one body and with one head, one shepherd. It is a new humanity. It's a new Adam. And that's what Christ did. Just like Adam came forth from the earth and was breathed the nostrils, the breath of life, he became a living soul. The first Adam, the heavenly creation that became earthly corrupted. But in Christ, we have the one that came out of the earth, the tomb. And was breathed nostrils the breath of life. The Holy Spirit raised him in power. Check me out on that, Romans chapter 1. The Holy Spirit raised him and just like Adam came from the earth and had life breathed into him. Christ came out of the tomb, had life breathed into him. And in so giving, he is. The first one was a living soul. The second is a life-giving spirit. The second Adam, Christ, is that caliphate, that head, that head of His church overall. Pete, I'm going to stop there because you need a little time to lead us in our communion. You know, if I were to summarize this sermon, I would say, praise God from whom all blessings flow.